Well, good morning, CityGates. Uh, Mike here, and I'm going to be sharing part two of our new series on First Peter. So really happy that you're with us. If you have a Bible, make sure you open it up. Otherwise, of course, the scriptures that I share will be on the screen. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, Vic shared, I mean, extremely well, lo- loved to share, but he also shared the uh, book intro from the Bible Project. And if you didn't see it, uh, please make sure that you check it out. Those are super helpful to give us good context when we started a new book. So uh, make sure you rewind and watch last week's. So somebody called this book, which is First Peter, a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. And um, last week, Vic explained uh, the whole idea of elect exiles, which stirred some great conversation in small groups. I'm sure, certainly in ours. And Peter was addressing in this book um, Gentile, primarily Gentile believers. Uh, What that means is they did not have a typical religious background as those that had come from maybe a Jewish Jewish lineage would have have had. So he references a bit later on in uh, 1 Peter the type of backgrounds that they came from, and they certainly would not have been consistent with anyone who had a formal religious upbringing. So we're talking about a church that is primarily Gentile in origin. And now these same believers are facing serious persecution. And so Peter is reminding them of who they are and what they have. And, uh, you know, I dug an old commentary out on on 1 Peter from the great Edmund P. Clowney. And uh, some of you will know him, obviously long since deceased, but just a great mind and a wonderful theologian. And so I want to set the stage today by reading a very poignant story from that commentary. And I read, In his play, No Exit, Jean-Paul Sartre gives his own vision of hell. Two women and a man, doomed doomed to perdition, enter a room that seems to threaten no torment. But they're sentenced to remain together in that same room forever, without sleep and without eyelids. All three enter with pretensions about their past. The man pretends that he was a hero of the revolution. In reality, he was killed in a train wreck when he tried to escape after betraying his comrades. The uh, the women have even more sordid lives. In the forced intimacy of the room, their guilty secrets are all wrung out. Nothing can be hidden and nothing can be changed. Sartre's imagination has well prepared us for his famous line, hell is other people, which I've never heard before for the record. But the moral of the play is the line of doom to which the drama moves. You are your life and nothing else. Sartre rejected Christianity, but his play invites heart searching. Who wants to say that he is what he has been rather than what he meant to be or what he hopes to be? Sartre implies that hell begins when hope ends and his image falls short of the reality of hell For God's judgment exposes sinners, not simply to the lidless eyes of other sinners, but to the all-seeing gaze of God himself. Yet Sartre reminds us of how desperately we need help. While there is life, there is hope, we say. But if hope dies, what life 
can remain. Clowney goes on to say this, and I paraphrase, Peter writes a book of hope, not a fragile, fond hope that we do not really expect to happen. No, he's writing of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. Now, I don't think that any of us would want to put ourselves in the no sleep, no eyelids story for sure. Um, First of all, uh, it doesn't take long, I think, for any of us to remember something that we've done or said that we deeply regret. Uh, It could be a massive thing. Uh, or it could be a relatively minor thing, but if we allow ourselves to relive it, terrible feelings of remorse uh, can flood us again, and, um, and it can feel like it just happened yesterday. You know, I can think of a couple of minor things in my life that I feel kind of ashamed about, and that I have to push away uh, when, it, when they cross my mind. As much as I know I'm forgiven and there's no real, there were no real consequences to, the, to my actions, it can still feel pretty dark if I allow myself to camp there. And uh, that brings me back to Peter. And we know the story, and again, Vic talked about it at length last week, but I just want to kind of bring one element in context of hope. For three years, Peter had placed his hope and his trust and his career and his family and his dreams in the hands of the one who told him that he would repurpose his life from being a fisher of a fish to a fisher of men. He had walked with this man. He had served with this man. He'd seen indescribable miracles performed by this man. He'd been on a mountaintop where he'd seen this man talk to Moses and Elijah. He defended this man in word and deed, which had led him to some pretty harsh, uh, led to some pretty harsh rebukes. Peter was sold out to Jesus, and everything else was a distant second until that dreadful day. You know, when the chips were down and his hope for the future was slipping away, the subconscious desire that we all have for self-preservation kicked into Peter. The end was near for Jesus, clearly, and his associate, Peter's association with him could also potentially end Peter's life. And so he found himself facing the same consequences, potentially, as Jesus was about to face. And he did what most of us uh, would have done in that same situation. And he distanced himself from the uh, consequences of being a disciple uh, by denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. His regret was instant. The Bible says he wept bitterly. The self-loathing and the shame must have been unbearable. The one who in Luke twenty-two thirty-three said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death, did not do that. He did exactly what Jesus said he would do, and he denied him. And Peter's hope died on that cross with Jesus. So I'm sure that he must have considered even ending his own life. Uh, over those next three dark days. Um, His life must have felt like it was spinning out of control. His dreams were shattered and his career was in tatters and his heart was broken because he'd failed to defend this magnificent and innocent man that was brutalized and executed in this incredibly barbaric way. And then the unimaginable happened. The other apostles, when they heard from Mary Magdalene and from Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women, um, and, and came and told them about the story of the tomb. They dismissed 
this empty tomb story as an idle tale, it says in Luke chapter 24, 11. But not Peter. A small spark of hope must have just ignited in his heart when he heard this news and he bolted out of the room and he sprinted to the grave. And uh, as probably he's in his mind, he's recalling all that Jesus has said would happen after three days. Now, maybe it's starting to make sense. And he saw the grave clothes and he left, the Bible says, marveling at what had happened. So the resurrection for Peter meant the regret of his denial was transformed by a new hope, which was a living hope. And so today, as we look through verses uh, 3 to 9, we're going to do it through the lens of the resurrection. You know, the resurrection separates Christianity from every other uh, faith stream, every other belief structure. Um, If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. It is, the, it is the pillar of what we believe. It is, I, I'm calling it for the state of this conversation, uh, the anchor which holds our faith. Uh, we will see the power of the resurrection as I go through these next few verses when it comes to what Jesus has done in the past, um, to what Jesus will do in the future, and to what he is doing in the present. So if you want to turn with me to First Peter, we'll start off by reading the first uh, couple of verses. Actually, we'll just start off on verse 3, and, uh, and I'll share some thoughts. So First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I'm reading from the ESV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's look at, I'm uh, calling this anchored in the resurrection, the past, what Jesus has done. And uh, I'm looking at this uh, first part of this letter through the eyes of Peter. Because of the resurrection, Peter can freely praise the merciful God who forgave him and gave him a second chance. I don't know what kind of flashbacks Peter had uh, for the rest of his life. I would find it hard to imagine that, that uh, if he thought about the denial of Christ, that he had uh, done previously, I can't imagine that he could do that without some feeling of pain or guilt or shame. I hard to imagine that. But in this letter, he is reminding this persecuted church that you can freely praise the merciful God. He forgave me. He's forgiven you. He gave me a second chance. He's giving you a second chance. Out of that reality of his new opportunity, so to speak, praise comes. Secondly, because of the resurrection, Peter can celebrate his new life. It says that he's caused us to be born again. It doesn't say we chose to be born again. It says that uh, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He is the initiator. He is the converter. He is the one that transforms us. And the denier has now been reborn as one that has been, and the original language says this, produced again with a new life that is conformed to the will of God. So produced again with a new life that is conformed to the will of God. So this Peter can now celebrate this new life, not as somebody who's taking credit for it. He has not a ton to take credit for. He's probably more embarrassed about his past than than he would care to admit. 
but he can celebrate the fact the resurrection has allowed him and had allowed him to have a new life altogether. And thirdly, because of the resurrection, the one who saw his hope die when the nails went through his Savior has suddenly got new hope. Not just any hope, but he has living hope. You know, it's fascinating. This word living, sometimes used in older versions, uh, uh, the word lively, it's used 143 times in the New Testament, including in John chapter 4, verse 10. We're going to read that together, where Jesus told the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He goes on to say this in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So there's water and there's living water. There is hope and there is living hope. You know, if I drink a glass of water, when I drink that water, it does help me. My body is, what, 90 plus percent water. I need water. I need to drink lots of water. We all do. And as we drink it, it helps our bodies. If we don't drink it, we'll die. But water from a glass will never give us life permanently. At some point, our bodies are going to die. Living water, um, as it says in the, um, <clears throat> in the Thayer's Greek lexicon, is figuratively used of the spirit and truth of God as satisfying the needs and desires of the soul. So this water is not natural water. It's different. It goes deeper. It prolongs. It gives life. It re-energizes. It's just not the same as a natural substitute. And the same way, living hope in the same translation is described as having vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. So this, this hope that we had before in our lives prior to us coming to Jesus Christ, meeting him personally and experiencing living hope, all our previous hopes have an end game. It doesn't matter how exciting our hope is and how amazing when it comes to pass, it all has an end game, but not this living hope. This living hope is supernaturally empowered by Jesus. It has vital power in itself and it exerts that power upon our souls, our very uh, insides, the way we think, the way we operate. This is this living, breathing, vibrant thing, and it can't be snuffed out. It cannot be snuffed out by failure or disappointment because it's not, it's not birthed uh, in a natural way. It's birthed in a supernatural way with the end game of salvation, total salvation in mind. So we, we, we have this now as the fuel inside of us. And this hope is more powerful than disappointment. It's more powerful than failure. It's more powerful than all the things. We have this living hope which keeps us going all the time. You know, Peter looks back to what the resurrected Christ has done. And he writes to this persecuted church to remind them of the things that he has personally experienced. He has experienced mercy. He has experienced a brand new reformed life. And he now has a hope that cannot be shattered or taken away. And 2,000 years later, in Christ, the same mercy, the same brand new life, and the same living hope is still transforming 
people today. It's amazing. You know, I love to hear stories of people that have recently come to Christ and I'm, I'm hearing them talk and I'm going, wow, it's amazing when living hope replaces the hopes that they previously had in in their old life. And I think back to my story and maybe your story as well. The things that were, you know, when I was a young man and I I was, uh, came to Canada and and I was just so driven to be successful and I I was in the insurance business and and did quite well, I guess, um, by some standards. And just, I remember writing my goals out and writing my dreams out and writing my hopes out. They're all temporal and they're all carnal and they're all material. And I achieved quite a few of them, to be honest with you. But I was still as empty as I'd ever been. Whatever I got from the outside, the acclaim I got by being successful, or what I drove or what I wore, I was still empty. I was still without a living hope. I had hopes. And I satisfied those hopes and I was still empty. And so I look at that time, and it's a long time ago that uh, Edwina and myself came to crisis, many, many years ago but I still can taste a little bit of the before. And I can remember that experience of meeting the resurrected Christ and how my life was transformed miraculously. And uh, there is no comparison between the before and the after. That living hope bears no resemblance to the hopes that I used to uh, build my life upon. So that's I think looking back, Peter's looking back to what Jesus has done for both him and his, uh, his readers. And then he goes on to look forward. Anchored in the resurrection, the future, what Jesus will do. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of the resurrection, we have complete confidence in the future. So when I use the term inheritance, pictures come to mind. I'm not talking about the earthly type. You know, when your aging parents tell you that they're going on an expensive uh, five-star Hawaiian vacation and they're going to stay at the Waikiki Hilton, um, and you, with an eye to the future, suggest that they maybe should look at the travel lodge in Orangeville. It's really quite nice. Now, I'm not talking about that kind of inheritance that we are are eyeing for the future. Um, One commentator stated this, Our inheritance is not simply a land, it's not a city, or even a new earth. It is all that God will give us, His full salvation. So those words describing this inheritance, imperishable, meaning it cannot be, it cannot decay. Undefiled means unsoiled and unspoiled. Unfading means permanent. And, uh, you know, in life, really, what can give us those three things? What can we ever attain to that is um, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? This is the inheritance that is ours. And the Bible says, kept under God for us. It's kept under God for us. And furthermore, we are kept for it. Amazing. As life-changing the experience of being born again is, it is only pointing to the fullness of our completed salvation. It will be fully revealed in the future, but it is already ready for us. The message states this, God is keeping careful watch over us 
and the future. The day is coming when you have it all, life healed and whole. And I think, I think this future element is something that we hold on to passionately. Um, I can passionately talk about the fact that, you know, God, I have a before and after story that's very defined and, uh, and undeniable. But that doesn't mean so many years in that I'm the finished product. You know, I find that some of those kind of neuropaths that were formed even when I was a kid, they still haunt me. They still trouble me. They still cause behavior that I'm not proud of. And, and so I'm aware, even so many years into this journey, that sanctification or becoming more like Jesus is a process. And so it's not, we're not saying we're the end product here. We're recognizing what happened in the past, but we are so captivated by what the future holds for us, where we will be life healed and whole. And I think for all of us, that is the dream, that is the promise, that is the guarantee. And finally, as we talk about being anchored in the resurrection, let's talk about the present, what Jesus is doing. Verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, uh, you have been Let me start again, sorry. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, we can make it through the trials of life and the trials of our faith. How this persecuted church needed to be reminded by Peter that in the face of severe persecution, uh, in the present, they had been miraculously saved and delivered in the past, and their future and their inheritance in the the, uh, years to come was guaranteed. Peter reminded them, and us vicariously, to rejoice in what they had received, and what is to come. And by doing that, rejoicing in where they'd come from and what was promised in the future, it became a way of sustaining them during the hardship of the current. The Bible Knowledge Commentary states this, these various trials, which seem to refer to persecution rather than life's normal problems, have two results. A, they refine to purify one's faith much as gold is refined by fire when its dross is removed, and B, trials prove the reality of one's faith. Stress deepens and strengthens a Christian's faith and lets its reality be displayed. So this church is being persecuted because of what they believe. There is value um, in what God does in us when we go through natural suffering, sickness or family scenarios or whatever it is, yeah, God uses every situation to develop us and to cause our faith to strengthen as we call upon his name. In this particular case, in this, in, this, uh, in this context of this book, they are suffering because they've made a stand for Jesus, an unpopular stand, and it's costing them a lot. It's costing them their possessions. It's costing some of them their lives 
And so um, this is not like a marginal thing. You know, I wonder, I'm not feeling so good today. I, you know, somebody looked at me the wrong way. It must be because it must be because I'm a Christian. No, no, it's because it's costing them. Their faith and their lives are on the line all the time. And Peter is saying, remember where you came from. Look to where you're going and praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will deliver you from the present, in the present. And so um, these exercises, that they, or this, these experiences rather they're going through, are dreadfully hard. Um, but Jesus is walking through that fire with them. And I say, conclude in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, the funny thing is Peter had seen him. Peter had lived with him. And pre-resurrection, he had denied him. But now he was just like them and us. He, they, we can now not see him, yet we believe in him. And we can be joyful when we really, on the face of it, have absolutely no reason to be joyful. We're thrilled because the risen Christ chose us and gave us a brand new life. We're expectant because we know that the future is spectacular. And we're resilient because we know that the present is a temporary stage in our pilgrimage. So those are the first, uh, the first kind of few verses that we've now covered up to verse 8 and 9 of First Peter. And, um, you know, as we move into communion, I think it's, it's pretty easy for us to, to, uh, to think about communion in this context because really we do exactly those things as we partake of communion. We look back to what Jesus has done for us uh, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This, this, uh, these emblems that we're about to partake of speaks of a meal. And um, it was celebrated at the Passover by Jesus and the disciples. It will be celebrated in the future, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, with every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, all having this amazing meal together. We're going to be a part of that if you're a Christ follower. But it also asks us um, to reflect on how we live today. So past, future, and current and you know the scripture in first corinthians 11 talks about uh, the kind of the positional behavior and lifestyles of the corinthians and when you do a kind of a deep dive into that chapter one of the things that it's talking about when it says are you worthy to eat this meal we're about to partake of together um, it's really about whether we have strife and discord and unforgiveness towards other people and you can see that, that pattern as you read through that, uh, that passage. So um, can we reflect, when we're about to partake of communion now, can we reflect on, from a heart level, are we holding unforgiveness or bitterness or anger or strife? Could be with somebody far, could be with somebody near, somebody near to us. But I, I think that part of this, this process of looking back, looking forward, and looking in now is... A heart examination. So as you're preparing the emblems, I'd like you to take some time to do that. So let's uh, let's pray together. Jesus, we, we thank you, first of all, for your incredible mercy that you've shown us. We, we, we look back and we are so thankful that you have caused us to be born again. 
you've caused us to have this living hope. And uh, we are completely transformed and changed because of what you did on that cross. And we are recipients of your sacrifice. So we want to thank you for that. So as we celebrate this meal, we look back, we look forward to the incredible future we have that's guaranteed, kept in heaven, reserved for us. But we also know that on this earth, we have to live uh, a certain way. This is like the, the traveler's guide that we'll see some of the behavioral things that you address even in First Peter. And so we ask you to forgive us for strife and bitterness and anger and things that would cause us to be divisive. Lord, forgive us. Um, this body, this, this bread represents your body, so to speak, not just your natural body, but also we think of the, the spiritual body that we'll talk about later uh, that is yours. And, and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that we are so vitally connected to, Lord, don't let anything stand in the way of us, we pray, uh, in being in unity as we partake of these emblems today in Jesus' name. So as we, uh, as we conclude our time together, if you are not a Christian and you've been listening, uh, I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to talk to you about what this all means. This may have been very confusing and may not have been helpful at all in your mind, <clears throat> but all of us have been on the other side of this where we've wondered what this whole Christian thing is about. And so please feel free just to contact us through the, uh, through the chat line there. I'd love to have a phone call with you and talk about what it means to serve Jesus and uh, feel free to reach out to us in any way that you feel like you need to. But uh, we'd love to chat with you for sure. So I conclude with a charge. I'm going to go to the end of First Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have an amazing week, and uh, we look forward to seeing you. If you're off school, enjoy your time. Unfortunately, parents, uh, try and enjoy your time with your children at such a high-intensity level. Um, for those of us who are doing small groups this week, we look forward to that, uh, but we'll look forward to seeing everybody next Sunday. Have a fantastic weekend.